A Nicaraguan bishop is under house arrest, accused of inciting violence after protesting government policy. Will the bishop receive justice? Executive Vice President at Freedom House, Nicole Bibbins Sadaka, weighs in. The Vatican announces a multi-million dollar budget shortfall and is Catholic teaching on contraception up for grabs? The Papal Posse, Robert Royal, Father Gerald Murray are here with analysis of these and the big stories of the week and a look at an inspiring new film directed by Academy Award winner Ron Howard. It's called 13 Lives. The World Over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. An important show for you tonight. If you would like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. You can always follow me there. Lots to cover this evening. Bishop Rolando Alvarez of the Diocese of Matagalpa in Nicaragua is currently under house arrest. He's uh, accused by the Nicaraguan government of inciting violence after he protested the closure of five Catholic radio stations. Here to bring us up to date on the situation and discuss the circumstances leading to the bishop's arrest, I'm joined by human rights activist, executive vice president of Freedom House in Washington, D.C., Nicole Bibbins Sadaka. Nicole, thanks for being here. You've been following this story. Uh, bishop Alvarez has been under house arrest since August 4th for protesting the government's closure of these Catholic radio stations. Uh, the closures came after those stations dared to air reports critical of President Daniel Ortega and his wife, Vice President Rosario Mario. What do you make of these charges and the timing of the arrest? How does peaceful protest against a government policy equal incitement? Well, first, let me just say thank you very much for giving us a chance to share our analysis and our thoughts about the situation. We have seen a mm -hmm. tremendous crackdown in Nicaragua on a number of of, of uh, clergy and others within the Catholic Church, which is, is really problematic from our perspective for a number of reasons. It's obviously a limitation of the religious freedom within the country that we're seeing um, radio stations that can't broadcast. We're seeing people who are not able to celebrate mass and to be able to um, reach out to their congregants. But we're also concerned because we recognize the vibrancy of the Catholic Church and of, of, of uh, faith leaders as part of a civil society that's absolutely necessary in the country. And what we're seeing across the board is the Nicaraguan government going after those actors, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, who are willing to raise their voice to express concern about the limitations of freedom, which are just unfolding every day in Nicaragua. And mm. um, we're deeply concerned about Bishop Alvarez's um, uh, the, the house arrest and that he has been he has been the subject of police harassment for not just since August, uh, August 4th, but certainly since yeah. um, since May, when we have seen um, he announced his hunger strike and that we have seen um, the, the government go after him consistently, as well as others in the Catholic Church. Yeah. The bishop is appealing to authorities. Uh, he's calling his treatment harassment. 
and asking for religious freedom to be respected. Uh, does that resonate at all with this government? We're not seeing that the Nicaraguan government cares about religious freedom or freedom of any sort uh, right now. Mm -hmm. We are seeing certainly the limitation, both, again, of Bishop Alvarez, but also Father Padilla, who was surrounded by police in his church in May. We saw the expulsion right. of the Vatican ambassador um, in March. And so we've seen a continuous harassment. And so we recognize that the government has shown that it is not fully committed or partially committed even to religious freedom in the country. Um, and, yeah, and a, religious freedom is, a, is one main concern, but just this, this opportunity to express yourself freely, the freedom of expression is something which is under, mm -hmm. under consistent attack in the country. Yeah, and Ortega has a long history of yes. uh, tension and uh, opposition to the Catholic Church in his country, even though it's a huge population, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, Bishop Alvarez has also spoken out for a long time against this regime. Is he praying, paying a price for that? Is that what this is really about? They found a moment where they could sort of point to, to something and call it incitement of violence or incitement of protest. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we're concerned that they are making up charges to give the pretense that there is a legitimate concern mm -hmm. with Bishop Alvarez's actions. But what we've seen is those things that he has done are consistent with, with um, religious freedom standards. They're consistent with, um, with freedom of expression standards. And him being able to just celebrate mass or him being able to speak out, those are a natural part of what we would expect from faith yeah. leaders in any country. Yeah, the, the, and look, there's a huge Christian population in this country, half of which of that Christian population is Catholic, 55 yeah. percent. Where are the people? Are they, are, they, are they afraid or are they standing up to defend this bishop and the freedom of their faith? Well, we, we recognize that there are many people who have who are fearful of this regime because the regime mm -hmm. has very clearly gone after very publicly um, political activists. It's gone, obviously, uh, against faith leaders, mm -hmm. Catholic um, leadership and clergy, and has gone against civil society. We've seen, you know, over 1,200 organizations that were shuttered, um, just non-governmental organizations doing the service to the people um, shuttered over the last several months. And so, understandably, people are are scared and they're concerned about raising their voice. At the same time, we see a lot of Nicaraguan um, activists and citizens that are raising their voice and pushing back on the government's repression. Hmm. Does he have any sympathizers in the government? I mean, I know I know Bishop Alvarez has been receiving statements of solidarity from his brother bishops in Nicaragua and surrounding Central American nations. Uh, will, will the support from the church hold? Does it hold any sway in this in this uh, environment with Ortega's government? Well, we we are certainly hopeful that the solidarity among bishops and also the solidarity that we're seeing from external sources, right, out, outside of uh -huh. the outside of Nicaragua will be important because it will also show the Nicaraguan government that it's not just one bishop that is of concern, that this is something where a whole network of people in the country and outside of the mm -hmm. country stand for religious freedom and they stand for um, and they stand for the right of this individual, but certainly of the whole community, individuals and the community yeah. as a whole to raise their voice. Well, why do you think this is getting virtually no coverage? I mean, it's very it's very the scant coverage is shocking to me. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that 
that such persecution doesn't get to the front page every day. And there's always reasons for it. We're seeing persecution of religious actors around the world that doesn't ever make the headlines. Some of it is that we're seeing the Nicaraguan government is persecuting so many different individuals that it almost tends to fall off the radar at times. I also right. think these types of stories are not holding sway necessarily with um, with listeners and and watchers around the world because there there's a lot of other things coming at us right now but it's so important to remember that these are individual people who are courageously raising their voice to push back on a government that has shown its commitment to silence people to restrict people's religious freedom to restrict their freedom of expression and that type of courage is what will eventually bring change in a country but right now is being met with such persecution yeah, well, it's also this hardening secularism you see all around the world, where this the religious expression is considered something dirty or second rate, and so everybody just kind of looks away. But someone else's religious and human rights expression gone today portends yours tomorrow if you're not vigilant about it. Uh, how do you see this playing out, Nicole? Where is the Vatican, by the way? I know the United States has been vocally opposed to this. Where is the Vatican? You know, I, we really believe that every nation, every nation should be raising its voice at this time. And again, as, the, as you just made the point, this isn't about the religious freedom just of this individual. It's about freedoms in general, because if we can silence one bishop today, then we can certainly silence an entire church or we can in, in, in silence an entire community. And it's really about creating the space and um, respecting the freedoms for all people because if one group is silenced, then there's another one that comes right behind it. It's going mm -hmm. to take external pressure, and whether that's from the Vatican or the United States or other countries in the region, it's going to be extraordinarily important that the Nicaraguan government hear very, very clearly that this is not acceptable behavior and that they cannot simply pressure one individual or a number of leaders in this community and get away with it. Yeah, no, I, I I don't understand the silence from the Vatican. I mean, look, if you're losing if you're losing your managers, if Chick Fil A were losing their managers in a certain <laughs> territory, they would be raising voice to say, "Leave our managers alone." But for whatever reason, the Vatican is unconcerned about this, as they are about their leadership in China. I might add, but we'll leave that for another day. Nicole Bibbins Sadaka of Freedom House, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you for having me. The Vatican disclosed its budget deficit this week, $3.5 million, but it was apparently less than anticipated. And a debate seems to have sprung up over the infallibility of Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae, dealing with contraception. Will we be seeing a modification of church teaching? Joining me now for always insightful analysis and commentary is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray, whom we pulled back from vacation to be with us. Gentlemen, before we proceed, uh, I just want to get your take on this house arrest of Bishop Rolando Alvarez in uh, Nicaragua, which we, we just covered. This is a very important story that hasn't been getting much coverage in the U.S. Father, your reaction quickly. Yes, well, this is the Ortega dictatorship going after uh, one of its principal opponents, which is the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church in Nicaragua sides with the people. They represent freedom, uh, the ability to operate according to, you know, the law of God, not the law of man. 
and uh, this you know heavy-handed dictatorial type power that Ortega and his cronies are using uh, is again a further outrage and the people of Nicaragua deserve better remember that the government expelled the nuncio a few months ago and now right. they're putting the bishop under house arrest uh, many people are suffering there particularly those defending the rights of the Catholic Church Bob, I'll ask you what I asked Nicole in our last segment. Where is the Vatican outrage, the consistent complaint against uh, a, a bishop being abused this way? Yeah, unfortunately, the Pope has been rather friendly toward regimes like the Nicaraguan regime, like Daniel Ortega, who has connections with the Cubans, who has connections with Maduro in Venezuela. These are, you know, the pariah states in Latin America, and he, he seems to be very reluctant to speak out against them because of this, this view that he has that, that there's some sort of, he said about Cuba, for example, that it's a symbol. Well, he didn't say specifically what it's a symbol of, but for most of us, right. it's a symbol of the awful uh, communism that entered in the 50s and 60s in parts of Latin America and then threatened places like Nicaragua with a very Marxist-oriented liberation theology. So it's unfortunate. It's not only the bishops, you know, they've su shut down I think a half dozen radio stations and some other activities. Right. It's very typical. I mean, I feel like I'm back in the 1980s when I first came to Washington mm -hmm. when Nicaragua was a big deal. And right. we could see that if it had not been for the collapse of the Soviet Union, we would have had this communist dictatorship there even earlier. But as, it's, as it is, Ortega has been there for 15 or 16 years, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any will in Rome to uh, to speak out about the abuses even, let alone the nature no. of the regime, which even our U.S. government, even the Biden administration has been very strong in criticizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I want to move on to the news. The Vatican is in the red, gentlemen. The Secretariat of the Economy announced a shortfall of 3.4 million euros, along with 8.1 million euro surplus in the operational budget. Now, according to Jesuit father Antonio Guerrero Alves, the uh, prefect of the secretariat, a deficit of 3 million euros in a budget of 1.1 billion is not a lot. It is practically balanced, and it does not seem like a figure to cause concern. But if we do a more detailed analysis, there are some areas for improvement ahead. Uh, Bob, what do you make of the recent numbers and the, the comfort that Elvis seems to have with a several million dollar deficit, uh, though it was far less than the 33 million euros that was originally projected to be uh, in the red? Right. Well, uh, look, we're, we're starting to get more transparency on the financial side. I think almost everybody recognizes that Francis has been slowly and with fits and starts, we're starting to get a little bit better of a handle on how the Vatican takes in money and how it spends money. Now, we still are not entirely there. I wouldn't regard this as, um, you know, squeaky clean and something that we can recognize as, as presenting a true picture. Something like 30 more institutions were included in this analysis, so it's not compar comparing apples to apples, it's apples to oranges. I was surprised in the reports that he said that the Vatican sells off assets every year. And I think in the, the past year, mm -hmm. they sold off something like $25 million in, I don't know what, it could be real estate, it could be other things. So uh, if right. that is an ongoing way of trying to close the budget gap 
you have to ask yourself, how good is that? But look, this is an ongoing story. It seems that things are improving. At least we have better information. And let's hope in the future we, we really get to the bottom of where things stand. Father, picking up on what Bob said there, does this go far enough to guarantee the transparency uh, of the Vatican's overall financial situation? And what about the underfunded pension system? That's a ticking time bomb. And the Vatican's financial scandal, of course, involving Cardinal Beshu, that goes on as well. Right. I think Bob is correct. It is an improvement in one sense, but it's not a complete picture. And certainly, uh, when we heard about this uh, shortfall expected in the pension plan, that is a ticking time bomb. Because as we know, in the last 40 years, the payroll of the Vatican has expanded greatly. In fact, under Popes John Paul II and Benedict, there were some attempts to reduce the payroll. But at the same time, there was an expansion of the Vatican bureaucracy. So I think we need some streamlining. I know the Pope, of course, has reissued a, a document or issued a document about the Roman Curia, which combined some offices. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there was any massive cutting of, uh, let's say, excess employees. Uh, that's really how you have to deal with when you have a pension mm -hmm. shortfall. You try to reduce your obligations. And then likewise, uh, what exactly is the overall picture involving every single entity of the Holy See and then Vatican mm -hmm. City State? Because selling assets uh, is a dead end uh, because eventually you're going to run out. Right. Well, Cardinal Pell has been warning about this for years, that the Vatican's headed down a perilous path. But $3 million being in deficit is kind of small change now. But as you say, it could mean far greater deficits in the days ahead. Now, over the past week, the Vatican's Pontifical Academy for Life uh, has raised some eyebrows. Uh, last month, the Academy released a publication called Theological Ethics of Life, which to some argues that Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae, a magisterial document, may not be covered by papal infallibility. Some scholars quoted in the publication appear to argue that in certain limited situations, couples might be justified in using artificial contraception and some methods of artificial reproduction. Father Jerry, canonically, what is the status of St. Pope Paul VI encyclical, we might add, does it fall under papal infallibility? Uh, it falls under what's called the infallibility of the ordinary magisterium, which is what the Catholic mm -hmm. Church has always taught and never contradicted and taught in a consistent manner uh, about uh, artificial contraception or any forms of artificial birth control. The Church has never endorsed it, always condemned it, said it violates the moral law, the order that God has instilled in man and woman. Uh, the purpose of sexuality. So all that is taught infallibly by the ordinary magisterium. Now, they say that it is not taught by an act of papal infallibility, which is, you know, something that we could debate about that. Certainly, there was no mm -hmm. act such as in the Assumption or the Immaculate Conception, where it's identified as such. But the other mm -hmm. hand, let's get back to a more basic point in theology. Just because it's not infallibly taught by the papal magisterium, as they're alleging, doesn't mean it's not true. Because the papal magisterium's never made an extraordinary statement saying that uh, the commandment thou shalt not steal is infallibly taught. You know, it, the, right. most of Catholic teaching is taught as an ordinary manner, as something you need to believe in order to be saved. And infallibility is added when there's a disputed question and to give it a firmer basis for belief. But the basis mm -hmm. for belief is already present before the infallible act. So what we got, right. what's going on here, Raymond, let's be clear. 
These people don't like Humana Vitae. They want to endorse contraception, so they're using every sort of argument we've heard for the last yeah. 40 or 50 years to try and impugn it. What bothers me most is why is the Vatican Publishing House and the Academy of Life proposing this under the guise of an academic discussion? That's just smokescreen. Mm. This is really a conspiracy, I think, yeah. on the part of some people. Hmm. Bob, your thoughts on the reasoning here, which sounds very 1970s, you know, something we might come up out of the German synodal way, where all oh, new thinking has informed our teaching, and now the, the teaching will evolve to catch up. Yeah, I don't have much respect for the, the, the rationale behind this. This has been tried, as Father said, ever since Humani Vitae came out. Mm -hmm. Initially, they used to talk about, is, is that teaching reformable? So they stayed away from the question of infallibility. And for me, uh, you know, they, what the philosophers and theologians call this is, is it's proportionalism or it's uh, kind of situation ethics, where in certain circumstances, and this argument was actually made also in um, Amoris Laetitia, that in certain circumstances that people yeah. find themselves in, the best that they can do is actually to practice an intrinsic evil. This is something that the church has yeah. never taught. And we know whether it, it, look, whether it's the ordinary magisterium or the extraordinary magisterium, the church has consistently always taught from the very beginning uh, that, that contraception was wrong. They start arguing that this, you know, it could be like Galileo, that we find that the earth moves around the sun rather than the sun moves mm. around the earth. This is nonsense. In moral matters, we don't have those sort of Copernican revolutions. We may find out that there are other mm. grounds for supporting the traditional teaching, but we don't reverse mm -hmm. the, tr the traditional teaching as if somehow we're smarter or we're more moral or we have greater insight into God's uh, intentions for his holy people. I, 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 yeah. I agree with Father entirely. This is a smokescreen. I've heard from some mm. sources that the Holy Father himself is not really all that excited about going down this road, but I think this bears very careful watching. Mm. Speaking of the Synod, uh, the Vatican is enlisting what they call lay Catholic influencers to work with the Dicastery for Communications to reach out to so-called unaccounted-for Catholics, young people in particular. Now, what, they, what they're trying to do is get them to participate in the Vatican's online synod surveys. Catholic apologist Jimmy Aiken is one of those who have taken to Twitter to drive traffic to this survey. Uh, Father Jerry, why is the Vatican interested in hearing from lapsed young Catholics as they intentionally drive traditional Latin mass-loving young Catholics out of the pews and out of the parishes? What do they expect to hear from these lapsed or inactive Catholics? Well, I think this is largely for consumption by the media and the public to say that what we're doing now is different than what we've done in the past. In the past, when the Synod of Bishops met, uh, they only consulted, you know, with theologians and bishops' conferences. Now they want to say, we're talking to the man in the street. Uh, the problem is the man in the street is not interested in talking to you. He's not going to be talking to you. What really bothers me is what you just said. I know plenty of young people who'd love to be heard by the Synod, and it has to do with things like traditional liturgy, reverence at Mass. It will have to do with supporting the teaching of the Church on all aspects, of not only of human sexuality, but, you know, all the aspects of the whole life of holiness. You know, we, we're seeing an explosion in the church of trivialization of the mass, of prayer, of the Christian life. Uh, that's what people are interested in. Not, they don't want to know if young people who don't go to mass want to blame it on the fact that their parish priests, you know, they consider them to give boring sermons. 
Uh, that's not the problem. The problem is, do people believe in Jesus Christ? Do they believe in heaven and hell? And do they believe that they're accountable to God for how they live? Those are the questions that, you know, need to be asked. And uh, I, this is PR, and that's really, when the Vatican descends to the level of PR campaigns imitating TikTok videos, uh, we're in trouble. Mm. You know, Bob, uh, when I listen to Father there, I, I think, you know, this is like, this is a little bit like asking people who's never heard music before out in the, in the, the, the desert somewhere to review Aida. I mean, there's no, there's no basis of understanding, no predicate to ask their opinion of a given, you know, uh, set of facts. So is this a case of pre-programming what they want to hear by querying the survey pool? I mean, the faith is too difficult for us to follow, so why not bring it down to our level? This is how we understand it. Yeah. Listen, we already have very good data on the opinions of young people. I mean, the real McCoy mm -hmm. is to go to a group like uh, the, the Pew Foundation, which does very, very sensitive professional surveys of all sorts of opinions, including religious opinions. In the Catholic Church, we have the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate here in Washington, which similarly is very professional and can go out and, mm -hmm. and really survey and find out, you know, why are people disaffected? What do they think about the church? Right. This stuff that, that we're looking at is really very hit and miss. When I first saw influencers, I said, oh, no, because, look, there's nothing wrong with, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with trying to get young people to engage a, a process. And, and thank God they asked Jimmy Aiken to be one of the people to, to get involved in this because right. he's, he's a very good guy. But influencers, I had, had this, you know, image in my head of somebody with the, you know, the, the camera on on t TikTok for 24 hours and trying to, you know, move people in one direction or another. Happily, it's not exactly that. But really, I, I think this is more for the Vatican's own comfort level that they tried to reach out to people that they were not reaching. And my, my basic worry about this, I, I talked to priests and bishops who have been involved in this diocesan phase that we're still in, and I think... In the next few days, we're now going to move to the uh, uh, the continental level. That's the, the next year is going to be mm. the continental level. Right. And what they say is, look, you know, we're trying to get the best people involved that we can. But when we pass the reports up the food chain, what gets dropped out and what gets mm. emphasized, of course, is going to depend on who's doing the actual sifting well, because you can't have the, everybody involved, right? I mean, that's going, to be the, that's, going to be the that's going to be the ultimate determiner of what where things come out. Right. Who, who's, who's the final edit and the final word? Uh, the German synodal path cont is continuing in Europe, and the German bishops this week are demanding a, quote, clear position on pressing issues. They've issued a 13-page contribution to that world synod of bishops. They write equal access for all baptized people to church offices. That needs clear uh, 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 assessment. A reassessment of sexual morality and a non-discriminatory approach to homosexual and queer people, end quote. Father, what do you make of this call for clarity, and do you see a pattern for this at a worldwide level? Uh, the only clarity they want is the clarity to deny Catholic teaching, and they're asking the Vatican to do that. Uh, this is a world upside down. Uh, the German hierarchy is on a collision path with Jesus Christ and his church, and they don't even have the decency uh, to step back and say, well, the people out there who are telling us these things, we know they don't represent Catholicism. 
uh, but we'll just mention the fact that they like that. No, they're proposing this as something that they endorse, they find comfortable with. Let's get down to what they're asking for. It's all the hot button issues. Mm. They want female priests. They want mm. the acceptance of contraception and homosexual activity. They want the equalization of marriage to homosexual unions. What is this? This is pure rationalism, secularism, modern decadence. Uh, this is, we're really, Rain, we're dealing here with something on the order of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it's no longer Martin Luther knocking on the door of the church. It's the bishop exiting the cathedral and saying, folks, everything the church has taught you in the past, forget about it. We're going to offer you a new religion. Uh, this is disgraceful. And I would say, I've said it before on this program, these men don't have the integrity to resign their office and say, I can no longer represent a church whose teaching I don't agree with. Instead, they say, no, I'm going to subvert this teaching and use my official position, and I don't care what ordinary Catholics say. I'm in charge mm. here. This is what we're going to do. This is disgraceful. Yeah. You know, Bob, uh, Martin Luther had the decency to leave the church and create his own. Uh, you know, these guys are trying to occupy from within in some ways. Will these reassessments of church doctrine, is this a foregone conclusion? This synodal way, Bob, seems to have a lot of momentum right now. Well, look, there, there's a lot, yeah, there is a lot of momentum. I'll tell you just a quick anecdote. I, I had a graduate mm -hmm. student studying with me 20 years ago, and she was, also, she was an American, but stationed in Germany. She was a, a military person. And she came in to see me one day, and she said that she tried to set up a Marian retreat at a Marian convent, you know, study center, you know, some sort of Marian institution in Germany. And when she brought the proposal in, the people who actually ran this institution, this is 20 years ago, told her it was too religious. <laughs> so, you know, this has been in the German bloodstream for a long time. Another student of mine who's now living in Germany told me that the people who actually are in mass, they're a very small percentage, mostly elderly, but they're utterly appalled at what the German bishops are trying to do. And for me, I mean, everything Father said about this, you know, being unfaithful and, and you know, it, it's, it just makes no sense. It's also suicide because no one is going to get up mm. on, on a Sunday morning and come to Mass to hear the things that they can read on the front page of a secular newspaper. There's got to be something right. more that attracts them. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the way the Latin Mass has, has kind of energized certain segments of the church, and it has. And maybe there are other things that can be done via, via liturgy or programs. But to give in to the secular world, I, I think, is the mm. fastest route to suicide for the church today. In Germany, a Catholic weekly conducted a survey which showed that a majority of German Catholics don't approve of the Vatican's stance on abortion. Get this. When asked, is it good for the Pope and the Church to speak out against abortion, only 17 percent agreed. A whopping 58 percent said they opposed the Church and the Pope speaking out on the issue. Um, Relator General of the Synod on Synodality, Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, has also indicated openness to adjusting church teaching on LGBT issues. LifeSite News posted a man questioning Cardinal Hollerich the other day during his tour of North America. Watch. And I would like to ask you a very clear point of question. After the state, you believe that sodomy should be considered a grave sin? I do not know what the senator will bring. We now listen to the people of God. What they express, I start getting in reports to you know the Relator General of the Senate. And so, reading all of that, 
in September we make a first draft for the continental meetings which will take place. I think that, uh, uh, first of all, I would never consider sexuality separated from love. The Bible has taught, and has taught for 2,000 years that sodomy is a sin, an abomination to Christ. But the Bible also said that we should stay with a woman who is an idress. The Bible has said that uh, the sun turns around with the earth. So the Bible is after to give an interpretation to the earth. So the fundamental scriptural teaching on sin. This is not a theological. No, 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 no. Uh, there is. Uh, I know that I am in full agreement with Pope Francis. I should mention we asked Cardinal Hollerich to come on the show this week as he's touring America. We're still awaiting a reply. Uh, Father Murray, your reaction to this biblical exegesis and the Cardinal's repeated insistence that he and Pope Francis are of one mind on these issues. Well, uh, uh, he, he can make that assertion, but he's got to prove that to be true. Uh, what I do know is that what he's saying is ridiculous. It's absurd. Uh, the Catholic teaching on the immorality of homosexual activity is both in revelation and the natural law. It's not subject to revision. Uh, the penalties uh, of the Old Testament, including stoning, our Lord put those aside. Uh, those are no longer mm -hmm. operative. But the teaching that the misuse of the human body to commit acts of moral turpitude is somehow part of God's plan, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Now, let's see what this cardinal is doing. He uh, is a former, he's a Jesuit priest, rather, spent many years in the Far East and was named uh, mm -hmm. by Pope Benedict to be the Archbishop in Luxembourg. So he's come back from Japan and he's now using this position of great authority to undermine Catholic teaching on a worldwide scale. He'll do that undoubtedly at the Synod, where he's going to be in charge of compiling all of the documents. Uh, what, do, what do we have here? Let, I mean, we should step back. A cardinal of the Catholic Church is saying that God's revelation is bad and needs to be revised. Uh, this isn't a Catholic teaching invented by men. This comes from the good Lord. He's, he's a man of great arrogance to say that, and he really needs to repent because what he's doing is leading people into sin. Imagine two homosexuals in his diocese who hear him saying this. They're going to continue to commit sin thinking that since the bishop says it's good, it must be good. Raymond, we're in a very difficult position in the church right now. Bob, are we headed toward majority rule when it comes to following church doctrine? Faith via survey and popular opinion. That's what I hear and see when you put all these stories together. Yeah, I think that is a profound uh, danger. Although the Vatican and the Holy Father have said repeatedly that the church is not a democracy, you know, that the, the, uh, the synodal process does not um, just operate according to majority rule. In fact, the impression that they give you know, in, in PR terms, people often talk about what's said and what's communicated. Well, you can say that you're not interested in submitting uh, a church teaching to, the, to a majority, but at the same time, by the way mm -hmm. that you go about uh, asking for people's opinions, you kind of give the impression that you are looking for, for uh, a majority. Mm. You know, for me, the, this homosexual question, I, you know what I like to do when, when this is brought up to me, is, is turn it back on people and say, look, we didn't invent this. 
This is not a bunch of Italian cardinals sitting around in Rome with nothing better to do. We're upholding the law of Moses. If you want to go against this, you can go against the Jewish tradition that goes back a couple of thousand years before our, even our Lord, and was, is a consistent teaching among the Jewish people and among Christians after them. Where you get the authority to oppose the, the, those two traditions, I don't know, other than contemporary mores, which doesn't seem to me to be faithful to anything, not to the tradition and certainly not to God. But, but, but Father Jerry, I'm going I'm to say this. Having listened to Cardinal Hollerick and read a lot of his comments recently, again, he is the relator general that the Pope has chosen to lead this worldwide synod. He is going to be the final editor-in-chief of whatever they discuss and the way it's framed. When you read him, Bob just said no one has the authority to overturn this consistent teaching from the Old Testament to the New, from the Jewish to the Christian tradition. But then he throws out, wait a minute, the Bible says to stone adulteresses, okay? So that was a teaching that, as you said, was discarded by Jesus. He's saying there are other teachings that need to be revisited. You would say what? It's not the same thing. Uh, you know, stoning was a legal penalty that was uh, given by the old, in the Old Testament. God gave it to the Jewish people. But then the Lord said he who cast, he was without sin cast the first stone. The Lord put that aside. Uh, the proper use of the human body, the, the sexual faculty, the reproductive faculty, is inherent in God's creation. And God revealed to the people of Israel and to all mankind that the improper use of that is a perversion and a deviancy, and it's wrong. You, can, you can't change human nature, uh, and therefore you can't change God's law governing uh, human nature. So. People who use this debating strategy would basically say mm -hmm. every single doctrine of Catholic teaching is up for question because X happened. Jesus, uh, you know, mm -hmm. turned aside. The, the adult, you no longer use adultery uh, with the death penalty for adultery. Therefore, everything's subject to question. That's just a silly, a false argument. Here in the United States, the New York Times ran a very interesting op-ed this week by First Things editor Julia Yost. Uh, it's called New York's Hottest Club is the Catholic Church. And it asserts that an area of New York City, she calls a dime square, has become a hip hotbed of traditional Catholicism. Father, given the Pope's harsh treatment of traditional Catholics, does this surprise you? And is this in some small way a backlash against the church's worldly embrace, if you will? Well, you know, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s in New York City, and the number of them who are completely disgusted and disenchanted with the sexual revolution and the gender nonsense that's going on and the political correctness, you know, what are your pronouns and all of this, and what do they find? Uh, you know, Catholic life rooted in tradition, uh, you know, the order and beauty of nature, of worship, it's very appealing. It's sort of like a back-to-nature movement where people say, you know, that life on the mm. farm has a lot to teach city dwellers. It's that kind of movement. Uh, but when you combine it with, uh, you know, the power of the sacraments, you can see where, you know, people who are languishing in sinful lifestyles who turn away from it, they rejoice when they find the beauty of a traditional Catholic piety and way mm. of life. Yeah. When you go to some of these parishes, Father, as I did this past week in New York, um, it is fascinating to see all these young families, all these young people, obviously being independently drawn to this clarity and traditional practice in opposition to everything around them. 
uh, I think the persecution that they're now enduring at the hands of some of their bishops and this edict that you may not practice this way or that way, it is all backlash. It, this is a huge backlash. What you're seeing is like the counter-revolution, uh, the counter-Protestant revolution we saw centuries ago. It's happening before our eyes, and many are missing it. Before we run out of time, Asia News is reporting retired Hong Kong Cardinal Joseph Zen will go to trial before the communist Chinese government starting September 19th. His eminence and five pro-democracy advocates are being accused of failing to properly register a charity on which they sat and served as trustees. Bob, your thoughts. The defendants are facing a maximum fine of $1,700 or so U.S. dollars. How long might this be drawn out, not to mention the strain on Cardinal Zen, who's in his 90s? Yeah. Well, I was actually surprised that they had scheduled the the, uh, the trial as early as they did in September because, you know, they could, re they could detain these people uh, without trial, just you know, with with no set date, they could just keep keep holding them. I mean, we know that these right. charges are trumped up. You know, it's somehow that they're they are unregistered foreign agents. That you know, they're they're threatening the party. This is the exact same thing that we were talking about earlier in Nicaragua. These communist regimes all have the same DNA. You know, they, they're repressive. Mm. It's the party that is the repository of all truth, of all freedom, of all democracy. And anybody who opposes this single political uh, force in a country is, is somehow evil. It, it, it reproduces itself. It did in the Soviet Union. It did in Latin America. Mm. It did in Africa. And now, unfortunately, it's still continuing in China. But God bless mm. uh, the cardinal. God bless Jimmy Lai and the others who were... Who were brave enough to stand up to the Chinese and actually stayed there. Didn't they, they could have left and been free the, yep. these days. They stayed there. And now their trials are going to show the world something about the nature of China's regime. No, it's revealing, as was the Pelosi visit last week to Taiwan. That was revealing, too, because you saw how angry and explosive their rage was that someone dared to defy even a visit, a, a diplomatic visit, was a cause of controversy and hatred from the Chinese government. They want to control everything. And the world needs to stand up, particularly the Quad in, that, in the Asian Pacific, and tell them, no, you don't get to call the tune. Father, all the accused, including Cardinal Zen, have pleaded not guilty. Uh, do they have any hope of a fair trial, given this Chinese national security law? Uh, I doubt they'll get a fair trial, but at least they're getting a public trial, and I hope we can hear their mm. statements and testimony. Uh, but the bigger story is, as Bob identifies, is it's self-condemnatory of the Chinese Communist Party, because when you treat a retired cardinal and a few associates who raise money to help people who have been imprisoned earlier because of their protesting activities, it shows how fragile uh, the regime considers its own ideology. And that really is... People who tell lies are conscious of the fact that they're lying, and the only ones who can really overturn them are people who believe uh, in the truth. So Cardinal Zen, he's very calm, and I admire him for it, uh, but it's up for us in the West uh, to stand up and say, look, uh, Communist China wants to do business with the West. Uh, Communist China has to be honest and deal with its citizens fairly. It's, it's no good if we can get cheap products in the U.S., and the Chinese people, like the cardinal, are in prison yep. simply because they say the truth. Well, a generation ago, we had the Vatican and the United States government and all of Europe uh, united in their outrage over these kind of human rights and religious abuses. And they took material steps.
to block and stop that. We do not have that in the case of China. The whole world is rolling over. Pope Francis has, the Vatican has, Joe Biden and the Biden administration have. And for whatever her failings, God bless Nancy Pelosi for going and standing up to this regime and taking a stand in Taiwan. It, it is one of the, the one of the bright lights in a career without a lot of them. Gentlemen, we will leave it there for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray. Visit the Catholic Thing. Org. And calming the storm, navigating the crises facing, or the crisis facing the Catholic Church and society by Father Gerald Murray is available in bookstores everywhere. Father Jerry, enjoy your vacation now. <laughs> Thank you. And don't forget about my forthcoming picture book for the entire family. It's called The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. I'll be telling you much more about it in the days ahead. Premier Editions is doing a very special signing event where they'll send you signed editions of the book. You can pre-order those now. Go to RaymondArroyo.com. The link is there. Also, you can pre-order the book if you just want your general copy at the EWTN Religious Catalog and wherever books are sold. Much more to talk about it in the days ahead. But there's a new film recently released that I wanted to tell you about, directed by Academy Award winner Ron Howard. It's called 13 Lives. It is an incredible true story of what took place when a Thai soccer team was trapped in a cave during an unexpected rainstorm. The world's most experienced divers were assembled to navigate a maze of flooded caves to search and save 12 boys and their coach. This story showcases the triumph of the human spirit over impossible odds and really is nothing short of miraculous. Here's a clip from 13 Lives. We found the boys. They're alive. Careful who sees that. ไม่ไหนเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอาเลยเอ
uh, and not just the truth itself, but the truth himself, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So for me, I wanted to tell the story of true England, which is the England that's remained true to the truth himself. And so that Christian presence goes back now almost 2,000 years, as you rightly say, from about 30 years after the crucifixion, uh, 63 AD, uh, right through to, to the present day. Hmm. Paganism lasted in England for several centuries, well after Catholicism had started to spread. One of the turning points that ended paganism was in 596, when Pope Gregory the Great sends St. Augustine to England. How did St. Augustine bring Catholicism to the island? Well, St. Gregory the Great, as you said, sent St. Augustine as, uh, as a missionary. Uh, the Catholic Church had had a presence in England for half a millennium at this point, which should, which should we mm -hmm. reiterate. But following the withdrawal of the Romans with the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, pagan tribes started to move into England from various parts of the Germanies, Germanic-speaking tribes. And so England was in danger of becoming pagan again, although there were still certainly Christian elements in England. So that great Pope uh, Gregory sent uh, St. Augustine, who was a monk with some companions, they converted uh, the King of Kent, the kingdom in the southeast of England, just over the sea from, from France, in, in Dover, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, you know, St. Augustine and other Christian missionaries spread the faith very quickly. I mean, by the end of the following century, the whole of England was Catholic. Whole kingdoms were converting um, in, very, in very quick mm -hmm. succession. So once, it, once St. Augustine arrived, things happened quickly. Mm. You write that one of the most important events with respect to the spread of Christianity throughout England was the Synod of Withby in 664. What happened and how did that shape the future of Catholicism on the island? No, well, so obviously what happened is that the English Catholicism before the arrival of St. Augustine had been very influenced by, by, by the Irish uh, Celtic mm -hmm. Christianity, which was very Catholic. But there were anomalies, including the, you know, the date that Easter was celebrated. So the Synod of the Whitby confirmed uh, and conformed uh, English Catholicism to, to the Church of Rome. And so the, the, the celebration of Easter uh, and other uh, parts of the liturgical year were based in conformity with the universal teaching of the Church. So that was the most important thing of it. It ensured that English Catholicism was Roman Catholicism. Hmm. Uh, that, that Reformation period, of course, was a major crisis for the church in England. Uh, it lasted, you had executions from the 1530s to 1680s, where priests and laity were constantly being put to death. You write that in the midst of that suffering and with waves of martyrdom, English Catholics found solace in parallels between themselves and the persecuted Christians of the early church. How did that 150-year period or so of intense Catholic persecution shaped the faith in England, and how did it differ from other countries who were also affected by the Reformation? Well, the, the, the thing we have to remember is there were really not there wasn't one Reformation; there were three. There was the uh, mm -hmm. the Protestant Reformation, you know, heralded by Luther and Calvin, etc. There was the Catholic Reformation, which is sometimes called the Counter Reformation, and there was the English mm -hmm. Reformation because Henry VIII. Uh, was purely a Machiavellian, self-serving tyrant. He wasn't a Protestant. Therefore, the, 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 English, the English Reformation, so-called, was basically just uh, dissolving the monasteries, taking away the power of the church, giving the church lands to uh, the king's own cronies, um, and uh, basically take, 
taking the faith of the English people away from them by force against their will. So there was very little appetite in England in the 1530s for Protestantism. England was a very and profoundly Catholic country, and the king and his henchmen ripped the Catholic faith away from the ordinary people of England. And as you rightly said there, following that, 150 years of executions, followed by a further 150 years of persecutions. So 300 years of, of, uh, of the, the Catholics in England being treated as second-class citizens. But how did it shape them? How did it reshape the faith as we have it today? Well, I think it purified them. In actual fact, in the history of true England, I actually see that period of persecution as something uh, not just uh, analogous to, to the early Christians and the catacombs and the martyrs, though it certainly is, but also, I think, ultimately, in terms of uh, the archetype, uh, it should be analogous to the Passion of Christ. It was that the, the Christians of England being crucified for their faith. Uh, and if you like, the faith of England being resurrected, first of all, in the hearts of those martyrs uh, and those uh, who worship with them. But also, I think, in, in, in the, if you like, it sowed the seeds for the Catholic revival, which begins with the conversion of St. John Henry Newman in 1845. Yeah. Which is the resurrection yeah, and the, the, after the Yes, and you I know you you mark uh, Newman's conversion as a major turning point of Catholicism in England. There, and also some wonderful English literature uh, comes from converts primarily, uh, Chesterton and Tolkien, and and really the earliest grand literary works stem from England. You say, quote, the late seventh and early eighth centuries also heralded the birth of English literature. Cademan, uh, the earliest known of all English poets, was a monk at Whitby Abbey. And it is to this period that Beowulf, the great English epic, belongs, a profoundly Catholic work, irrespective of its woeful and willful misreading by modern critics. Beowulf was almost certainly written by a monk. How is Beowulf influenced by Catholicism, and what leads you to believe it was written by a monk? Well, a couple of things I would say about it. Beowulf, for those who, who don't know it, is basically divided into Beowulf's struggles with three separate monsters. In the first two, the monsters are demons. Uh, and what, what the, the, the epic shows us is the errors of the heresy of Pelagianism. Now, Pelagianism was rife in, 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 in England in the early days of Christianity there. And it's very much a modern heresy. It's, it's really the self-help heresy. Because what Pelagius taught was you don't need the sacraments, you don't need the church, you don't need grace. You just have to, you can get to heaven by the triumph of your own will, by self-help. You just do what Jesus mm. says and you get to heaven. Um, so what Beowulf shows us is that Beowulf is the mightiest warrior. He is the strongest warrior. Uh, and he has the best technology, the greatest sword that's ever been made. And even the most mighty warrior with the most mighty sword cannot defeat the power of evil without supernatural assistance. In other words, a symbol for grace, which is in the form of a magical or miraculous sword that has... Uh, elements of salvation history inscribed on their hilt, and it's with this miraculous, mm -hmm. ultimately supernatural sword symbolizing grace that, that, that man can defeat evil only with God's help. So it's a profoundly theological work um, and uh, mm. very influential people such as Tolkien, as you say. So it's a, a major, yeah. major pillar of Western civilization. And, and I want to talk about present-day England. Um, this week marks, of course, the celebration of Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne, the longest-serving monarch in England's history. How significant is this celebration in the history of England? And then I want to talk about what happens next. 
Yes, well, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth II is a very interesting person. As she's got older, she's got more Catholic-friendly. Uh, if you listen to her Christmas Day message to the, to the people of England and the, and, and the Commonwealth, uh, her allusions to the church uh, have got much more favorable. When she, was, when she was younger, she was sort of a low-church Protestant, and now she's very much a high-church, uh, at least crypto-Catholic. Um, so we've certainly seen her moving in the right direction. And I would say as well that for someone to have been on the throne for 70 years and the gossip columnists don't have one single uh, thing on her, uh, that demands and commands respect. And so I think that England has been blessed by the Queen as a monarch. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, she has had a beneficial impact in the sense that she does have a traditionalist, uh, traditional understanding of morality, of Christianity. And although she's not mm -hmm. um, a Catholic, members of the royal family have been converting recently. So I see hope for the future. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because obviously uh, Protestantism is the, Protest is the predominant religion, and Queen Elizabeth is, quote, the defender of the faith and head of the Church of England. What is the state of that church today? Last year, four Anglican bishops left the Church of England and converted to Catholicism. So tell me about the state of that church and the prohibitions on Catholics entering the line of monarchical succession. Could that be adapted, changed? Yeah, the, 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 first of all, it's quite evident now, by far, that the largest Christian presence in England is the Catholic presence. The Anglican Church has collapsed. It's collapsed basically because of the decadence of its own modernist theology. And if there are lessons there for all of us to learn. If you, if, if you follow, Chesterton mm. said, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Well, the Anglican Church has been mm. trying to move with the world and has collapsed. So that's a, that's a, a message. The good news, however, is that the, the Catholic Church has stepped into the vacuum, stepped into the breach, so to speak. And you're correct, there's been uh, several bishops who have converted. There's also been um, hundreds of Anglican clergymen that have, that have converted, many of them becoming priests. So um, the Catholic Church is the dominant Christian presence in England now. And as and when and if, and by the grace of God, when uh, England uh, is, is converted, it will be a Catholic country again. Hmm. What do you what do you think? Obviously, Charles is going to assume the throne at some point, probably soon. The queen is 96. What does that portend for the monarch as head of the Church of England, given the eviscerated shape it finds itself in? Well, there's an anomalous situation. Prince Charles is a bit of a bit of a, an anomalous situation himself. Um, for instance, uh, some time back, he said he didn't want to be known as the defender of the faith, but merely as the defender of faith, whatever on earth that means, in order to be inclusive yeah. of other religions. So uh, there's there, there's that there's that direction we can go in. Of course, the title defender of the faith was some given by the Pope. I want the end of the eighth. Defense or <laughs> so ultimately, uh, if the monarchy is going to have any uh, significance as regards the faith of the people of England, that the monarch has to defend the faith of true England, in other words, the history of, of, uh, of the Catholic faith in England for 2,000 years. That's, that's the only meaningful religion that England as a nation and a culture and a people and a history has ever known. And what we really need is the mm. reunification of the monarchy to the, to the fact of England's faith. Wow, what a message. And, and your uh, warning earlier about the state of the Anglican Church and others who dare follow it, and as we were talking earlier in the program, it seems there are forces within Catholicism wanting to move it in that direction, in the direction of the world. We'll see how that pans out, but uh, I hope people listen to your warning, Joseph.
I'll give you the last word. Sure, and I, mean, I, 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 you know, I think ultimately the lesson we see from the history of England and from contemporary issues in the church is that we have to choose between the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Age. If we choose the Spirit of the Age, mm. we have no future. Choose the Holy Spirit, we have mm. a future here on earth and a future in heaven. Mm. We will leave it there. Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England by Joseph Pierce is available now at bookstores everywhere. Thank you for coming. Don't make yourself a stranger. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.